welcome back to The Professor and the Hack. We're up to episode uh, 20, Professor Peter Van Ronson. God, it feels so much more than that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 20 already? Yeah, if you've been listening to us all that way through, thanks for your staying power. And if you're new to it, welcome. I'm Hugh Remington and I'm the Hack. And let's start with some boats and tamils because uh, the case of the Tamil family from Biloela is back in uh, the courts again this week, uh, now entirely centering on the two-year-old member of the family who hasn't been assessed uh, for her refugee status. And this has enabled, uh, for better or worse, the focus to, um, uh, to come back again into, uh, into the whole question of asylum seekers, what are they entitled to, what are the obligations on us, and what are the limits and the uses of ministerial discretion. I don't even know what to say on this one. We've been up and down this road so many times before, haven't we? I mean, I've always been a bleeding heart on asylum seekers, so I think that I've never really believed that the pull factors are as significant as the push factors. And I also think that there are double standards when it comes to how we assess uh, refugees or the supposed threat of the arrival of, of refugees before they've been fully assessed, so I should call them asylum seekers, I guess. Uh, when they come by boat, it doesn't take many for it to be a problem. Apparently uh, today we read that there's been a surge because there's been six boats attempt to come since the election. Uh, during that same time, of course, there has been thousands of people come by plane that have sought asylum, but apparently that's not a concern. It's a concern when they come by boat, but not when they come by plane. It's curious, isn't it? Because the election was in May and had Labor won, uh, doubtless Peter Dutton would be up there with these the so-called surge saying, look what happens when you vote for Labor. You I was get a surge of that. votes and now he's dropping... A surge uh, of boats. Did you say yeah, boats? Yeah, a surge of boats. They needed yeah, a yeah, surge well, of votes. Yeah. So, But, I mean, it is curious, isn't it, because you can't presumably blame Labor for this surge of boats. Ah, but they're trying, Hugh, because of the Medivac. The Medivac bill, yeah. Mm. Even though the It all experts... seems a bit dodgy, though, doesn't it? Because, you know, how many times have we heard that the government, oh, we can't talk about on-water matters, you know, we're not going to talk about... Unless we want to. very secretly. <laughs> and then it gets leaked. Not a press release. It's not... You know, if they want to put out a press release out of the minister's office to say, look, this is what's happening, and it's everyone who gets that in their inbox has equal time to have a look at it. But these things customarily are dropped Hugh, to the news corp. Dropped? Hang press. on, this is this is breaking news to me. You think it's a drop? I, I assumed we needed to get the AFP in uh, to, investigate. To, to investigate. You know, whoever wrote the piece probably needs to have some serious AFP investigation to try to ascertain where this unauthorised leak came from. It couldn't have been a drop. Surely the government doesn't talk about on-water matters. Well, that's right. And this goes actually, though, to the sense of cynicism, the deep kind of... Uh, lack of trust, lack of regard for a process in which everything has to be very secretive until it's of some value perceived to the government, in which case it gets fed out to, you know, the, the faithful hound dogs and um, and there it is to make whatever point you want to make politically. And it all comes out of Dutton's office. Is that why no one ever right. leaks this stuff to me? I'm not a faithful hound dog. <laughs> <laughs> when you've just said you're a bleeding heart on uh, refugee matters. Now, from you know, I'm going to be a little bit devil's advocate because... Um, uh, this family has been found not to be refugees through all the processes that That's are true. available in law. and Which is uh, surprising as Tamils. I mean, I, look, I, I understand and I accept the process is the process, but just before you play devil's advocate, it, it, 
it is fascinating with what I've read and known and studied actually and taught over the years about the Tamils in Sri Lanka, the idea that peace is such now apparently that they therefore don't qualify for refugee status, I'm surprised. I mean, that's actually quite a, that's quite a hard line uh, as a yardstick that they're putting in place there, uh, that you can be a Tamil having fled Sri Lanka and not qualify for refugee status. I'm going to reveal something here. My father was a Tamil speaker. Weirdly enough, he was a tea planter in Sri Lanka and the the workers were mainly Tamils and I was born in Sri Lanka and spent my first five years of my life surrounded by Tamil people. Do you have citizenship? I don't know, but I'm I'm sure if I was to run for parliament, Parliament. it would turn up. Um, The issue with it is, is that this has been well worked through the courts in the case of this family and he says that he was forced into the Tamil Tigers in 2001 when the Civil War was very much active. Uh, And so, therefore, if he was to be sent back there, he could be persecuted as a former terrorist, as as they were seen uh, by the the, the Sri Lankan authorities. Now, during that time, though, he made uh, repeated work trips to the Gulf. And and then when he came here, uh, he was, uh, well, put it this way, the Sri Lankan government has indicated they have no interest in this person. Having said that, when families are being sent back who've come by boat from Sri Lanka, according to Professor Damien Kingsbury from Deakin University, he's looked into these things, they are routinely uh, put into custody, at least for a period, Mm. while they are assessed. So whatever happens, uh, the two kids who are blameless in this exercise are going to probably find themselves in a period of custody in Sri Lanka if they get sent back. Uh, You know, against that, the risk is, this is the Dutton argument, is that if you let someone who has no apparent danger upon return other than a period in custody uh, come in here and then have children and the children become the, the means by which the pressure goes on for them to stay in Australia, then the plain incentive is for people to come here by boat and then have kids. Mm. Uh, and that see kids as being a, a way to stay in the country. It's it's an awkward and difficult one. Yeah, and look, I, I can see the Minister's point uh, and I can unfortunately accept reluctantly, despite being a bleeding heart on refugees, that if the process determines that you aren't a refugee, then that's that. You know, change the process if you're unhappy with the way that that transpires, but... The ones that I have a profound issue with are the ones that are determined to be genuine refugees who are left in indefinite detention. On uh, islands. On on islands, Mm -hmm. offshore processing, having excluded those areas from the migration zone, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody, as much as they have my sympathy, somebody that has fled for a better life who has actual fears, let's assume, let's take him at his word, um, for what might happen to them when they go back. I, I hear all of that, but if the official process determines that they're not a genuine refugee, then that has to be the end of the matter because otherwise you are actually talking open borders unless you change that process. I think I've just found a moment there where you're on the other side of the argument from uh, Alan Jones and Barnaby Joyce. They've out-bleeding-hearted you, Peter. What's their argument? Just because it's a child. So um, 
I think their arguments are broadly the same, although expressed slightly differently. But Alan Jones has basically said that uh, the people of Biluila have taken to this family and his comment is that uh, their view should be taken into account. And we do have to allow for the fact that there is discretion for the minister. The minister can... They do have discretionary powers in this, so they can do it. And Barnaby Joyce is, broadly speaking, the same. Mm. That uh, the family is uh, well regarded in the town that they're in and and so therefore let them stay in the town. Maybe they need to sort of take up au pair work and they'll be all right. <laughs> and the, both of those figures are right-wing figures who have got themselves in trouble recently, so Barnaby Joyce and Alan Jones. Mm. And so uh, it's it's curious that they may be... Well, they, look, the, the issue that I've got with them having exceptionalism for this family is that where does that stop? You know, I mean, the, the amount of times that I rail against uh, figures of the left and the right finding exceptionalism and therefore applying it. Yes, sure, there's processes there for ministerial discretion, but most Australians don't like that. I mean, I would rather that the process is followed uh, and if there are some people that struggle through that process and even a bleeding heart like me doesn't give them the extra sympathy, that's because the process is the process, I'm afraid. Uh, it, it's It's got to be followed. Uh, I would, you know... <laughs> I would follow the same process for actual genuine refugees by the hundreds who are sitting there locked up. You know, I think that's just beyond the pale uh, in every conceivable sense of the word. But if they're not found to be genuine refugees, then they go back. End of story. And you don't believe that uh, well-connected au pairs necessarily should get the benefit no, of a ministerial I don't, discretion? Exactly. I don't like that uh, exceptionalism either. Speaking of exceptionalism, we've seen the exceptional scenes of the ALP, uh, the New South Wales, the magnificently powerful. Do you shop at Aldi? <laughs> it's not a loaded question. Well, the things I put in my Aldi bags don't tend to be $100,000 in cash wrapped up in rubber bands. So, I mean, I think a, a historical perspective is necessary here because Sussex Street, for those not living in Sydney, is a one way street on the fringe of the Sydney CBD, not the most glamorous street in, uh, in Sydney that leads on down towards Chinatown. But it is code. It is a two-word code for the uh, essentially the most powerful <coughs> machine that exists mm. or certainly has in recent decades within the Labor Party because that's where the headquarters is. And so Sussex Street, for those of like me who are old enough to remember the glory days of Graham Richardson, essentially running numbers uh, out of the right faction, the New South Wales right faction, the absolute powerhouse behind both uh, Hawke and Keating um, and uh, Bob Carr as well, that it has declined to this Keystone Cops disaster zone that we've seen in recent days. What do you make of it? And how does the, how does the Labor Party, if I may put it this way, Get it stuffed together after this. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not casting aspersions on any individuals by saying this, let me be clear, but I wouldn't be surprised if versions of what we've seen revealed more recently have long gone on at Sussex Street in some form or another, uh, known or unknown uh, to particular people there. The difference is that this stuff's getting cracked a bit wider open these days than it used to in the past. I mean, for a start... You know, in recent decades, the arrival of ICAC, we've seen quite a few things revealed uh, across both parties, quite frankly, uh, when it comes to ICAC. Um, but not just that, but then the the increasing um, high bar, if you like, for donations from property developers or from overseas parties, whatever it might be. So I think a lot of those rules 
were either not in place or not enforced in the past. Uh, and I think versions of this have probably gone on in some form or another for some time, but but we're, so we're, we're knowing not, about it more now. Sure, so we're not seeing deeper corruption. What we're seeing is uh, the torchlight going into processes. Yeah, long, well, it's, almost, it's almost a positive way of looking at it, I think. Because yeah, It's funny, though, because if I'm interrupting there, because one of the things which emerged out of this guy, Wang Zhangmo, who was... Uh, ASIO was warning the major parties to avoid because they believed he was an agent of influence. That was to come a little bit later on. But one of the things that he did, and it's emerged from this, is that he offered the Labor Party $400,000 for a donation. And then that donation dried up when Stephen Smith, then a minister, made public statements that were critical of China's position regarding those militarised islands Mm. in the South China Sea. So... Because of what a minister said, doing his ministerial duty on behalf of the, of the Labor Party, the government and the whole nation of Australia regarding Chinese islands, $400,000 is withdrawn as a potential donation uh, for the ALP. Now, this is classic management of influence. You oh, give absolutely. money when you're good, you take money away when, when you do the wrong thing and this is the way in which without the public seeing it, the influences whole, policy, absolutely, or at least the perception that it influences policy. It's at least that, if not the actuality of it. But this is, oh, Hugh, this is such a bigger problem, right? I mean, look, the issue of, you know, donations of, of that sort from overseas interests against the national interest potentially uh, at, at and only provided uh, on the quid pro quo uh, of policy outcomes is, is horrendous, to say the very least. But... Are we surprised? I mean, look at culturally how this leaks to a point of that. Now, that's the bad end. That's the really bad end. But here's something that's just accepted in terms of political donations. Both parties do this. They have their conferences and then they have their business roundtables and forums and they have what's an almost political donation version of speed dating where you pay a certain amount of money as a business person to come in to attend one of these events and you work your way along ministers where you get a couple of minutes with each. And that is buying access to ministers or shadow ministers. There's no other way to put it. You are buying access. You and spend all, all the politicians say, oh, yes, but we're never, we're, never, we're never there to take orders. You know, we're just having, you know, we're, we're just getting to meet oh, well, There's nothing to it. Well, uh, to extend the logic of that, then we should just let our sports people bet on their own game, shouldn't we? Because they don't do it to do the wrong thing, they just do it because they like to have a punt. You know, come on, let's, I mean, I'm not, I know you're not defending it, but, I mean, these guys are just kidding themselves, right? They say, oh, it doesn't influence what we do, even if it doesn't influence what they do. A, it has the potential to influence what they do. B, it has the perception of influence, which matters in a democracy because you want public confidence in your institutions and in your politicians and you are undermining that. I mean, it's everything from... Cruises on the harbour uh, in kind for, you know, donations for cruises on the harbour with ministers. Walks. I mean, I've seen these events where the Prime Minister of the day or the Minister of the day goes for a walk that's auctioned off at a, at a fundraising event. It's, it's insane what they do. And then you have, the as I mentioned already, the speed dating equivalent as well. You've got these roundtable dinners for $10,000 a head, uh, you know, for half a dozen or a dozen people to meet with a Prime Minister or a, or a senior minister. This is how they raise their money. And even if somehow it's all pure and they're not influenced, why do we think people actually pay the money? You know, do you think people pay the money to not have influence or do you think they pay the money to have influence? 
I mean, it's just so obvious. The idea that our politicians can sit there and piously claim that none of this matters, I mean, they are literally kidding themselves and it's embarrassing. Polly Perks to come. Federal ICAC, we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about a small matter of the economy slowing down. We're going to take a little break here on The Professor and the Hack. We'll see you in just a moment. Hi there, I'm Sandra Sully. At 10 Daily, we pride ourselves on delivering great stories about the things that matter. From the biggest news of the day, right through to what's clicking, what's hot, what's happening now. We have it all covered. 10daily.com.au Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack. We were mid-flow, I cut you off there, PPO, on uh, on the business of influence. Um, I, was, I was very high up on my high horse, but I'm, I'm ready to get off now and talk about something You're else. just down on the low donkey now, are you? <laughs> but one of the things that comes out of this is that ICAC has done its work in New South Wales. It has, it has shone the light. It has embarrassed the powerful. It has revealed shonky practices. It has brought the mighty low. And that, in a sense, is what you need it to do. Why don't we have a federal ICAC? Why do we still not have? <laughs> That's a federal That's why, ICAC? Hugh. You've just you've just explained why not. None of the politicians want to know about it. But by heaven, I would have thought that the people of Australia, uh, they can see the stuff coming out of New South Wales. Do they imagine that it's all happening in New South Wales in state politics? I don't think so. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Of course. I mean, in many ways, the stakes are higher. At a, at a federal level on a lot of policy scripts, not once upon a time, of course, where it was all service delivery at the state level and it was really just management of the macro economy as well as foreign affairs and national security that the feds did. But with the creep of federalism, federal governments now have their hand in a lot of policy-making decisions at the at the level where business interests are high. So, yeah, you can only assume, can't you, that it's inevitable that at some point in time we're going to have a version of a federal ICAC, but well, when, you, we'll you, see. You'd need it because if you're, if you're saying and if your suggestion is that people buying access to politicians buy influence with those politicians or at least buy the potential for influence with those politicians... Or the perception. Well, well there is an enormous amount of money made available mm. for access to federal politicians. So presumably all the people coughing up the money to those federal politicians assume that there is a value in that process. And it only takes one bad egg. I mean, let's not forget, even if, you know, you've got politicians who might hear this or read or watch various discussions of this ilk, and sure, a lot of them might be outraged. They might think, you know, I, I didn't put this system together and I don't do the wrong thing. How dare you? And I can understand that reaction for some of them because most of them, I would dare say, would have the integrity to, to not be influenced. I still say the perception is an issue, even if that's the case. But it takes one bag egg. You know, you've got 42 people on the front bench in federal parliament, you know, 30 ministers or thereabouts, 12 parliamentary secretaries or assistant ministers, 42. You just need one bad egg in a particular policy area uh, that does the wrong thing and off you go. The system is severely tarnished. And they cooked up a a plan when uh, the coalition thought that they were going to lose uh, the election. because there have been these inquiries, these parliamentary inquiries into whether there could be a national integrity commission and they cooked up one that said, yes, we could bring one in, um, but that it's uh, it, it couldn't look retrospectively, it couldn't look backwards, <laughs> only into the future. And they'd set up a nice little arrangement assuming Labor would get in and then that would give them a cudgel to beat Labor with into the future while being uh, saved from it themselves. Now, poly payouts, hmm. talk to me about that. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we sort of think that the days of the generous superannuation schemes are over, but they find other ways 
to provide some sort of fiscal buffer for outgoing politicians, you know. A fiscal buffer is a beautiful euphemism. (laughs) What are we talking about when we say fiscal buffer? Well, assistance in finding their next role and it's you know cash in the back pocket essentially, essentially but it's it's a it's a payout it's a and it's a generous payout so so what form does it take what's what's going on well so, well some of it is sort of the idea that they are getting just cash to tide them over depending on length of service and so forth but then someone like Karen Phelps is getting a, la- a relatively large payout i think somewhere in the order of 50,000 it was she wasn't there for very long Eight months and the theory is that there's sort of a retraining and and assistance in helping ensure that outgoing politicians can, you know, re-enter the workforce. You know. She goes back to her medical practice. Well, that's true. I mean, and, you know, she didn't ask for this, by the way. She just is entitled to it, so good luck to her. But, you know, she's the classic example of someone who wasn't there for long, never finished her practice. She actually made quite a deal of the fact that she intended to stay in it. And then, then she loses quite quickly and goes straight back into it quite seamlessly, if anything, with a slightly higher profile. Uh, she doesn't need it uh, and she's certainly not retraining um, but the dollars are there, and that's just one example. Uh, we've, we've also then got retirements uh, who are people that are still on the generous super scheme, of course. We've seen that that written about writ large for a while now, everyone from Christopher Pine to Stephen Chobo, Nigel Scullion. What about Nigel Scullion? He spent uh, over $100,000 uh, during the course of the election campaign of taxpayers' money in his role before retiring. You know, he wasn't even... Seeking he wasn't re-election. even seeking re-election and he spent 100000 bucks flying around and, and all the rest of it, you know, accommodation, travel allowance on the taxpayer. So it comes in all different forms. Um, but again, where perception matters, this is the sort of stuff that voters look at and just think, oh, they're all as bad as each other. There's never any implications, though, beyond a watering down of respect for the body oh, politic. I think there are implications in the sense that... Uh, I, I mean know, implications in terms of it, it, both they, sides are doing breaking it. the law, yeah, because, I mean, you have situations where, say, someone, I think when they retire, presumably, you know, the argument goes is that you should be serving the public right up to the last minute. But we know that's not the case. We know of cases like Bruce Bilson, who was already taking a wage from the Franchisees Association or whatever it was called while he was still in Parliament and then seamlessly went on and took over that job. He'd previously been the small business minister. Um, so it's not as if people who are retiring are not planning and packing their own parachutes mm. and yet they still get given a, a swag of cash to see, them, yeah, see the them on their way. It's another thing, say, if you're a marginal seat holder. Exactly. You're battling away, you're trying to hold that seat. It's desperately close. You know, a few hundred votes might make all the difference. What do you know you lose? You wake up the day after the election and go, oh, God, I'm out of work. I better go and see what I can do. And there might perhaps be a little bit more sympathy for that. Um, but someone who's planning out a good retirement after a long time in office, you would think doesn't need a great deal of transition time um, to... Uh, I just always find it... I, I mean, I agree. I, what I find ironic is that often it's the same politicians who are talking about changing workplace laws, mm. uh, which are reducing workers' rights... Uh, who are then the first to line up to put the snout in the trough when it comes to their rights, which are quite unique for the political class when they go out the door versus for everybody else. Treasure out of touch there because the conversations happening around dinner tables, uh, the people that I'm talking to all the time, the people that you, you, you know from other instruments by which you can figure out what's going on in the country, is people are concerned over the fact that their wages haven't grown and they're concerned about a softening in their prospects. So um, there's the sense of security in employment mm. is is not there. So everyone is 
in a sense, having to be a bit like their own entrepreneur for their own careers or the jobs that they're trying to do or where might the next job come from. So there's that softening about everything in the workplace. And I think this is where people get very cynical again about politicians because they're not seeing anyone, you know, all their own transitions are not being covered by sums of taxpayer money. And it's the same with, uh, which you're alluding to, you know, the whole issue of pay rises and, and depressed wages. Certainly in the private sector that's the case. In the public sector even, we see a massive clamping down, the government making a virtue of the fact that it's not allowing pay rises in the public sector to be too significant because they're holding recurrent expenditure down as much as they can for the purpose of the return to the budget surplus. But then they just put their hands up in the air whenever it's poly pay review time and say, oh, well, it's an independent process. There's nothing we can do about the fact that there was a massive pay rise that was independently awarded to us. Uh, It's the same as the conversation. I I did this in one of the stories uh, here on 10 one evening, you know, the Prime Minister, when it comes to the New Start debate, and some people saying, well, New Start in real terms, you know, as in beyond inflation, hasn't gone up at all, not by $1 since 1994. Just ponder that, anyone listening. Between 1994 and 2019, the New Start allowance has literally not gone up by $1 in real terms. It is, in terms of purchasing power, exactly today what it was in 1994. Now, the pension, salaries, everything else has improved quite substantially. And the other thing about that is that if you look at that in real terms, when you look at the basket of goods that make up the CPI, Mm. uh, some of the things that have come down in price significantly are things like flat-screen TVs. Mm. Now, if you're on Newstart you're probably not buying many flat-screen TVs. No, you're trying to get some bread and milk if you can. And your power price, meanwhile, has gone up. Absolutely. And the real things have gone up. And here's the thing. So the Prime Minister, in his response to people that say Newstart has to go up, it hasn't increased in real terms since 1994, he just says it goes up twice a year with inflation. It's gone up every year, twice a year, that's the rule. Next question. Okay, well, I did a calculation on the Prime Minister's salary over that period of time. Now, you know, in fairness, Scott Morrison hasn't been there since 1994, but the office to which he currently sits, in 1994 to today, if it had gone up at the same inflation rate as New Start, rather than at a higher rate, he would not be on the 550000 he's on today. He'd be on 320000 Good Lord. Yeah. So his very argument for saying to people on New Start, you know, which is a couple of hundred bucks a week, his argument for saying to them, no, you go up twice a year, every year, we're not changing it. Well, if his salary had gone up at the same inflation rate twice a year, every year since 1994 as Prime Minister, today Scott Morrison wouldn't be earning 550 grand, he'd be earning 320. That is um, probably the most interesting thing I'll hear all day today. What's good for the goose is not always good it's for the gander. And it shows you that uh, there's... There's no advantage like being in power or mm. possessing power. And as you say, it's not Scott Morrison through all that period, but the politicians yeah. it's collectively... The, it's the spin, hold. though, isn't it? It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it, it, I'm sure to a lot of Australians to hear him responding to people calling for Newstart to go up and just simply saying it goes up twice every year at inflation, and it has done since 1994. At, intuitively, at one level, that can sound powerful because you sort of think, oh, well, yeah, it's going up. Well, well. It's but that, the point is, as you were saying, some things go up more than others when it comes to inflation and changes in pricing. And that's why wages during that time have gone up more than inflation. That's why the pension has gone up more than inflation during that time. It's just new start that hasn't. And one of the things that's gone up the most compared to inflation during that time 
is the Prime Minister's own Prime salary. salary. Uh, speaking about going up in economic terms, we're going to get the uh, growth figures, the GDP figures are coming out this week and all the expectations are is that it'll be pretty sad. Mm. In fact, the uh, budget just from April of this year reckoned that the, um, uh, the GDP figures for, uh, for the coming couple of years was going to be at 2.75%. Uh, the expectation is we could be down at around about half that, at mm. 1.4% annualised. Uh, it could be, you know, plus or minus around that. But plainly, there is a softness in our economic growth, which is profound, potentially the slowest levels of growth this century, or at least since the GST kicked up mm. in uh, 1st of July 2000 and the impacts that had on the economy. Um what is that going to do to our budget surplus and what does it mean for real people? Well, I think we probably still get the budget surplus because they'll find a way to get there because it's so politically important. Uh, unless things get much worse, I think they'll find a way to move the numbers around and, and still scrape over the line for the surplus. But for real people, uh, it just means that it's a very sluggish economy, a very sluggish environment, which means that wages growth becomes nigh impossible. In that sort of scenario, it means that jobs are under threat uh, and it means that business being depressed, we're in a virtual retail recession already because when numbers get that low in terms of economic growth, the only thing that's really driving them is population growth. The other thing is is that we're reading that uh, house prices or property prices in Sydney and Melbourne in particular are on the rebound again. They're Mm. going up. They're going gangbusters. If wages growth is so low... Uh, the reasoning for this is that, A, Labor didn't win the election. Um, negative, uh, <coughs> negative gearing remains in place as a policy. And also we are being now told by every source that interest rates are going to stay at or low record levels off into the distant future. So therefore um, you can get stuck into it. And so who's driving it? If it's not coming through wages, um, is it the rich buying up more property? And that that is going to mean that they are renting it out, negatively gearing where they need to, so it becomes the tax shelter. What is driving it? Uh, Because if its wages growth is so depressed that it's unlikely to be people just on wages, Mm. um, it suggests locking in a level of unfairness into the future. Yeah, and I think part of it it comes back again to population growth. You know, I, I do think that when you see the idea that house prices in major centres like Sydney and Melbourne are likely to start moving north again rapidly. That tells me that, you know, these are two of the most desirable cities for population growth. Melbourne, I think, is either has or is about to outstrip Sydney in size. And Sydney, obviously, is the epicentre of Australia, whether people like it or not, not living in Sydney. That That is, in many ways, the way it is. So, and somewhere like Perth, which had massive population growth, it's actually going the other way now. Uh, and there's a risk that they might lose their 16th seat uh, that they were awarded in federal parliament because of their increasing population growth as a state, WA, I mean. So I think a large part of it is that there's that migration into those major capitals and that's one of the reasons why it's a double-edged sword for government, isn't it? You've got, okay, a rebound in property prices. Property owners don't mind that. People buying in, it's a bit harder, particularly for first-home buyers. Um, but then it also comes with all the congestion and infrastructure issues as well, which we see government talking more about now too. So uh, there's no appetite post the election for the kind of tax reform that might put a depressing uh, of house prices effect into the policy mix. 
the government will make a virtue of this, even though people that aren't in the market don't see it that way. And low low interest rates is a big factor, by the way. We have mm. to say that. I mean, you already said that, Hugh. But you know, having very low, historically low interest rates with near certainty that they're going to stay there for some time to come, uh, that makes it easier for people to try to buy a home at one level, even though borrowing is hard at the moment because the allocation of credit is a little bit depressed. This is talk at this stage about house prices. Let's see where it goes because it wouldn't take much for that suddenly to stop almost instantaneously depending on what happens in the global trade debate. Mm. It's all about confidence. Uh, Peter Van Onselen, thank you for joining me. The Professor, always good to have your wisdom. Parliament back next week for two weeks. So we will speak again, no doubt, but... Uh, there will be the return of fire in Canberra. We look forward to that. Uh, Thank you for listening. to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.